Well, good morning again, everybody. It is great to have you worshiping with us, and uh, we are traveling through our series on one-to-one, and for those of you that are newer or visiting this morning, I just want to take a brief moment and kind of explain why we're doing this. Uh, Several months ago, I was listening to a podcast by an individual of the name of Kerry Newhoff, and he brought on a guest, Tom Rayner. Kerry Newhoff is a former pastor of a church in Canada, and he's now sort of moved into what we call an apostolic role, so he is is essentially a pastor to pastors, and Tom Rayner is uh, the founder and president of a research-based company that is studying essentially church and church health matters uh, around the world, but particularly in the United States. And to make a very long story short, the purpose of this podcast was to discuss the dearth of evangelism within American churches. Uh, Tom came on and he said that over a period of several years, they went to a variety of different churches and examined and asked where they were placing their focus and their emphasis. And what they discovered that uh, was occurring was churches were putting a lot of effort in some very important things, but the common denominator was they weren't focusing on evangelism. And interestingly enough, when I heard that, that began to cause me to become concerned. Because obviously, we are here as followers of Christ to worship our God, but more importantly, we should be going out and advancing the kingdom of darkness. And so through that, I began to think and pray, how can we as a church begin to really think about evangelizing our community? And the first thought that I had was it's going to take more than one sermon on one Sunday saying, hey, let's go tell everybody about Jesus. With that, we began to think through and come up with this uh, series called One to One, which was originally uh, done by Dr. Robert Lewis several years ago. The idea behind this is for all of us to recognize that we have relationships with other people. Does anybody know somebody that is in your life right now that doesn't know Jesus Christ? Okay. see a lot of hands going up. The whole point behind what we're doing today and what we're doing over these several weeks is to give us a tool to be able to be equipped to begin to engage in spiritual conversations with individuals who either are newer to the faith and have come to Christ but need a solid foundation to, to work from, or maybe there are people that are not believers, but you have had or will have the opportunity to engage in spiritual conversations with them. What do you say? How do you encourage them? Are you willing to take the time to explain the scriptures to them, to tell them about Jesus? And so with this, my encouragement to all of us is, number one, to be thinking about who's your one. We've seen a lot of hands go up. And one of the things that I'm praying about is that beyond just a sermon series or beyond just a Bible study, that you will be able to take this and over the course of the year pray about, God, who is one individual or one family in my life that you have placed that could potentially hear the message of the gospel? And that in that, you would go to them and say, hey, I've noticed that you've been asking a lot of questions about God. Would you be interested in going through a series with me called One to One, which is obviously this series here, and this is what we've been talking about and will be talking about for the next several weeks. 
and that with that, you would commit to taking this individual through it. Why? Because really, our call is to be advancing the kingdom of darkness. Uh, sorry, the kingdom of light over the kingdom of darkness. That's what we're here to do. That's what we're called to do. It's great to come to church. It's wonderful to worship our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But what we're discovering is, is that the majority of growth in churches is transfer growth. It's not evangelistic growth. And so what we want to do is to go out into the community feeling that we are equipped to be able to present the gospel in a very logical and very informed way to people who might have questions. With that, we've traveled through several weeks and we've discovered essentially in the beginning the uniqueness of the scriptures. For two weeks, we talked about the Bible. We talked about God uh, wanting to reveal himself to us. We talked about individuals being inspired by the uh, word of God being presented to them and then writing it down with accuracy. And then we examined the accuracy of the scriptures. We talked essentially about how do we know that what we have today is real? We demonstrated and we sort of showed how through a... Uh, sort of a, a scholarly work known as textual criticism, we can trust that what has been written in the scriptures presented to us today is 99.5% accurate to what was written centuries ago. And then everybody wonders and they say, well, what about the other 0.5%? And what we discover is, is about 75% of that 0.5% is either spelling mistakes or grammatical error. That's how accurate the scriptures are. And so on that foundation, what we begin to realize is if the scriptures are accurate, and if they are real, and if the Bible is unique, then there is something that needs to be told from it. And so we then traveled into understanding a little bit more about who God is. We discovered that God is triune, that he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's three, yet one. We discovered that he's all-knowing. We discovered that he's a just God. We discovered that he's a righteous God. But we also discovered that he's slow to anger and abounding in love. And then last week, we said, given that, how should we respond to him? What are we essentially asked to respond to God about? And one of the things that we talked and I was impacted by was, do we enjoy our relationship with God? And that was a question that I throwed out to all of us. As we examine our walk with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, do we enjoy that relationship? Or is sort of our life based on a religious function? Something that we just tick the box off with. Gotta go to church today, gotta go up, gotta sing a couple of songs, gotta look good, gotta tell people that I'm doing well, but I don't enjoy my relationship with Jesus. And one of the things that I think is so important about that is if we enjoy our relationship with Christ, if we recognize that it is a relationship with Christ, that is going to strengthen us in our walk as well as our witness to the people who are around us. This morning, we are now turning to another aspect that I think is important for us to see, but also other individuals to see, and that is a conversation about Jesus. Today's title is Jesus, the Man of History, Part One. And we're looking at his unique beginning as well as his incomparable life. In part two, we're gonna be looking obviously at his death and his resurrection. 
and what that means and why that had to occur. But this morning, we're focusing particularly on these two aspects. And so one of the things that I think when we go to people and talk to them about our faith that we will run into is a very simple question. People will come to us and they are going to say, what is so important or unique about Jesus? Why Jesus? Why not somebody else or something else? Why Jesus? And one of the things that we have to recognize and see is many individuals will go out and they will acknowledge Jesus, even if they are not of the Christian faith. They will say, yep, you know, we recognize Jesus. We realize that he was a real person. We realize that he was a true historical figure. We realize that he was a great guy. We realize that he was a great moral teacher. Some people will even up that ante and they will say, we realize that he was a prophet among many. But the unique aspect that we're going to discover about Jesus is he's all of those things and more. He is God in the flesh. And that is the separating moment that brings Jesus to the forefront of our faith. God in the flesh. It's known as a hypostatic union, essentially Jesus being fully God and fully man. And it is wholly unique to who Christ is. And one of the things that we have to recognize is that if we begin to diminish the fact that indeed Jesus is God in the flesh and Jesus is the Messiah, all of the foundation of the Christian faith goes like a house of cards. And so to start off, what I want to do is I want to um, just think about this for a minute. How many of you have followed a leader in the past? Maybe it's a boss, maybe it's a political figure, maybe it was a coach, maybe it was an individual who you aspired to look at. And let me ask you about that leader. Did any of you begin to discover flaws within that leader? Okay. I'm going to tell you right now, I have flaws. We all recognize that in ourselves, we have flaws because we are human. But here's what I want to show you about Jesus. Dr. Robert Lewis says this, it mattered not that he lived in obscurity most of his life or that he never wrote a book or conquered a country, right? When we think about leaders today, we think, oh gosh, they've got to they've be someone that's vibrant. They've got to be somebody that is in the know. And of course, you know, either after they've been the leader, or as they're the leader, they've got to write a book, right? How many presidents do we see that about eight to 10 years after they, their presidency, they write a book about it? No, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but they do it. Interestingly enough, we continue on, and he says, in three short years of public ministry, he altered mankind's perspective of life forever, speaking about our Savior, Jesus Christ. It is upon this real historical figure not a mythical legend that Christians rest their faith. We have to recognize that in three years, Jesus established a ministry that has lasted across the centuries and will last forever. So there's something wholly unique about that. He changed the world. Now, the reason that we postulate that he changed the world as believers is because he was God in the flesh. But many people will question, who 
is Jesus and why is he so important? So the first thing that I want you to see is that Jesus had a unique beginning. Jesus' beginning is wholly unique to what we see from other individuals, other prophets, other religious figures that brings him to the forefront as someone that must be recognized. Now, I'm going to go through two prophecies. If I were to go through all of the prophecies, which I'd be happy to do, we would probably be still here when the Super Bowl was playing. I would like to live for another day, but I do encourage you to go out and look at the prophecies that have been given and the prophecies that Christ answers. Because when you do, you recognize that it is impossible to doubt the uniqueness of Christ and that he is the Messiah when we recognize what has been said about him with accuracy and what was fulfilled in him with accuracy. So a couple of quick things that I want to just throw out to you. The first prophecy given, we're going to read, it's out of Isaiah 7, 14, and then 9, 6, and 7, which was written around 720 B.C., is this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And then the next part of that is, for us, to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And I want to I stop there for a minute. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. I don't know about you, but that's one heck of a campaign slogan, isn't it? Okay? Now, I'm, I'm going I'm to be very careful here. I'm not going to belittle Jesus down to a political figure, but imagine that. If someone walked up and said, I'm here to tell you that my government will continue to increase and the peace that I bring will never end. That's somebody that I would take notice of. And in our world today, you begin to think and you say, how is that possible? How will that occur? And yet one of the things that we're going to discover in a a little part of after in this message is that Jesus could authenticate and do what he said he was going to do. How often do we see leaders come forward and say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. When you come and put your trust in me, things are going to be better. You should follow me. And then as soon as we put our faith and trust in them, what do they do? The exact opposite of what, we, or what they say they're going to do. One of the things that we have to realize is what Jesus says, Jesus does. What Jesus said, Jesus did. What Jesus has said, he will do. We continue on, and it says, um, He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness. Imagine following a leader who will establish a kingdom, who will uphold it with justice. 
How many of us scream for justice? How many of us look in our world today and cry out and say that's so unjust? But then also we look and we look at an individual who will uphold it with righteousness. Someone who's not doing things behind our back. Someone who's not looking good in the forefront, but in the back doing things for them to gain power or authority to manipulate people to their control. And then it says, from that time on and forever. Don't miss these words. Because these claims that are made are absolutely preposterous for any human leader. They sound good. They're one heck of an amazing campaign slogan. But the reality of the claims, for them to be true, are wholly preposterous apart from being those of Jesus Christ. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The firm conversation of Isaiah saying, I'm bringing you a king, and I'm bringing you a savior, and I'm bringing someone to you who is the Prince of Peace, the Wonderful Counselor, the Everlasting Father, and his government and his justice and his righteousness will reign forever. And then notice when this was written, approximately 720 BC, and everybody gets excited and they say, when? When will we see? When will we have this? And a day goes by, and a week goes by, and a month goes by, and a year goes by, and a decade goes by, and a century goes by. And people begin to think, is it just a lie? Is it just a pipe dream? Is it just something that sounds good to hopefully make us continue in the world that we are in? And then lo and behold, approximately 720 years later, we see the prophecy fulfilled in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 through 33. This was written in and around the first century AD, okay? Obviously, I'm talking about the time of writing. The event occurred in Jesus' ministry. But this is what was stated. You will be with child, and you will give him the name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. And lo and behold, as prophesied, we hear the cry of a babe in a manger, who indeed is our Messiah. And that's just one of the prophecies that have been given. The other quick thing, too, that I want to just encourage you in, and we talk about the importance of the virgin birth, uh, lately that's been under sort of some attack, is maybe the right way to say that. How could Jesus be born of a virgin? And the simplest way to say this is, is that's absolutely foundational to our Christian faith. Because... Jesus was fully God and fully man. That concept is foundational to the establishment of who we worship. 
You remove the virgin birth, you remove the deity of Jesus Christ. You remove what we worship entirely and we worship in vain. We worship just a man. But yet what we worship is a man who was God in the flesh. The next prophecy that I want to give to you is that of Zechariah 9.9, kind of a fun one. This was written in and around 520 B.C., and it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Kind of an interesting way for a king to enter, isn't it? We would think that a king would want to enter with pomp and circumstance. Particularly in Jesus' day when a king would arrive, they would come with a great army. They would come with great fanfare. They would come displaying their power and their authority. Why? Because they were mere mortals. Because they were trying to essentially promote who they appeared to be knowing that they were finite and ultimately their power at some point would end. And yet, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, comes forward having salvation, riding on a donkey, and needs no more. And then we see this prophecy fulfilled in Luke 19, 30 and 31. Jesus himself says, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Now, one of the things I think is interesting here is, if you're Jesus, and it's been said that you're going to come on a donkey, wouldn't you think maybe if you weren't truly God, and you weren't connected intimately to the Father, that you might look at that and say, you know, my dad told me that I'm supposed to get a donkey, but I gotta kinda pick this up a bit. I gotta make this look better than it actually is, and that something else would have occurred. But what we see is Jesus fulfills the prophecy that was given, because indeed he is who he is, as we discovered previously about God, and we need no more. We don't need the pomp and circumstance. We don't need the flair. We don't need these things to try to make me look better than I am because I am who I am. I am God in the flesh and I bring righteousness and salvation to mankind who will believe in me. And to make it even more interesting, we recognize in Philippians that Jesus humbled himself, making himself that of a lowly servant so that we might be lifted up. I don't know about you, but that's the leader that I want to worship. Jesus' unique beginning is one that we have to examine in scriptures. And what I want to demonstrate to you is this, that the unique beginning is one that does not try to make Jesus look better. He doesn't have a publicist He doesn't have a media organization. He doesn't have a makeup artist. He doesn't have a political counselor. 
He doesn't have the entourage behind him all trying to say, do this, do that. We need to make you look better here. You need to change public opinion there. We need to look here. All we have is Jesus because all we need is Jesus. And that's why Jesus' beginning is so unique. Look at other religious texts. Look at what they do to try to sort of rearrange and make the entity or the entities that they discover look better than they actually are. And why is that? Because they know they're false. Why is uh, Jesus so important? Well, we've discovered and we see that he's had a unique beginning. And the other thing that we have to recognize, as we've discovered before about the scriptures, is this. We have to remember that the whole Bible points to Jesus Christ. Okay? The whole point of the scriptures, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, point to Jesus Christ. Oftentimes, I kind of explain things uh, to individuals using a football analogy, and I'm going to do that today, given that we have the Super Bowl coming forward. But the best way to describe this is the Old Testament would be the pregame show. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going on. We have, in the analogy, we've got two teams that are playing. They do all of the analysis. They look at all of these things. We're going to see what's here. We're going to see what's coming. All of the Old Testament is pointing to the need for a Messiah. And it's also pointing toward the people's continual rebellion from God. And yet God's continual steadfast love for the people. And then we get, essentially, to the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's the game, right? That's actually watching the Super Bowl, for lack of a better word. Speaking about Jesus, speaking about his ministry. This is what's going on. This is what's occurring. And then afterwards, when Jesus has done what he's done, the remainder of the New Testament, the epistles, all of that work, is the explanation of, what does that now mean? Now that Jesus has come, now that he's done what is, he has done, what does that mean for us? And that's where we're going to be traveling in the next couple of weeks. We're going to look at Jesus, but then after we discover who he is, we're going to examine what does that mean for us as believers? Or what does that mean for us as God's creation? So one of the things that I want to encourage us in is to recognize that the whole point of the scriptures is to point us toward Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. Without Jesus, we have nothing. And that's why it's so important. So not only did Jesus have a unique beginning, but the next thing that I want to show you is Jesus had an incomparable life. And I'm going to just do a couple of quick things for you. Um, let, me, let me just do it this way. How many of you have ever talked to someone and they said that they were something but you knew that they were not, right? Anybody ever have that happen, okay? So I'm gonna just tell you a story. This happened several years ago, but it was very interesting. Um, we were traveling home from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. We were driving our car. We were heading back from Jackson to Iowa, and in so doing, we had to go through the town of Dubois, Wyoming. I don't know if any of you have ever been there, 
But Dubois, Wyoming, you go over the pass, you head into Dubois, it's kind of the last town before you, I love Wyoming, I shouldn't say this, but before it starts to kind of get a little bit boring, if that makes sense. So we're in Dubois, and we're sitting there, and we're um, waiting to go into a restaurant, and there's a bunch of people, we're having to wait, and this individual is there, and he is speaking, and he comes forward, and he says, hey, you know something? I want to let you know, there's a better restaurant down the, the, the street, so you can go there, and uh, I'm the mayor of Dubois, and, and I'm telling you to do this, okay? And I look at him, and number one, I know he's not the mayor, but I decide to play a little bit, okay? Because there's these other people around there, and what I know is he's doing this to try to get me to believe him, so I'll leave the line and he can go forward. That's what's happening. So I go, oh gosh, that's really great. You're the mayor of Dubois. That's wonderful. Can you tell me a little bit about the restoration that's going on just up the road that's the new World War II Monument Museum and when it will be open and the foundations behind it in front of all of these people, right? And he's like, oh yeah, that museum. Uh-huh, yeah, sure. And immediately I'm like, yeah, whatever, okay? So not in a mean way, but I just turn to him and I kind of look at him and I just go, sir, you're not the mayor of Dubois, are you? And he kind of sheepishly said, no, no I'm not. I said, okay, that's fine. I said, why don't you go get back in line, right? Now, why am I bringing that up? Because oftentimes people will say things to try to make you believe what they are, but they will not have the ability to back up the claims that they make. And what we're going to discover is Jesus says some pretty preposterous claims. Yet every claim that he makes up, he backs. And everything that he says is true. Authenticating himself as the Messiah. Next thing I want you to see is this. Dr. Robert Lewis says, early in the brief public ministry of Jesus, he became apparent that he was making startling, startling statements about himself. And I just, I want to pause there for a minute. What you have to recognize in the scriptures is that when Jesus either makes statements about himself or does not deny the claims that are presented, he is inflicting a death sentence upon himself. Why? Because in Jesus' day, if someone claimed that they were God, that was seen as blasphemy. And the problem or the right thing to do when someone claimed to be God and was not was to kill them. There's a lot of stake in that game, isn't it? Okay? I don't know about you, but back in my mischievous days, I could make some claims and I could try to fool you that I'm something that I'm not. But if somebody came to me and said, every claim that you're making trying to fool us with something that you're not is going to lead to your death, I'd probably stop making those claims, wouldn't I? In Mark 2, 1 through 7, we see... Jesus, tell individuals, your sins are forgiven. 
In John 11, 25 and 26, Jesus claims, I am the resurrection and the life. Everyone who believes in me will never die. Okay, I just, just, let's just take, take this for a minute and forgive me, God, but what if I came to you all and I said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Okay? That's a pretty big claim, isn't it? You better be able to back that up. But also fully knowing that in Jesus' day, if I came before you and said, I am the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me will never die, would lead me to death? That's a pretty preposterous claim. And then also, in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. These claims are given because Jesus is who he says he is. And what I want to do is I want to just show this to you. How many of you have kind of heard the lunatic liar lord analogy? You ever heard that from C.S. Lewis? Okay. We're just going to present this to you. I think it's important to see. Um, this is stated in uh, Dr. Robert Lewis's study, but he's borrowing it from C.S. Lewis. And so um, this is what we need to, to recognize. Okay. Some of the claims that Jesus makes, okay, I am the resurrection and the life, right? No one comes to the Father except for me. When you think about those claims, you have to begin to logically think about who this individual is that's making those claims. And this is what I want to read to you, okay? Those who study this life of Christ are led, because of this claim, to one of three conclusions. And it's very logical. He is either a lunatic, he is a liar, or he's Lord. He's either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's Lord. So let's look at conclusion number one, okay? He thought his claim was true, right? He thought his claim was true. Now, think about this for a minute. If I come to you and I say, I am the next NFL starring quarterback, okay? I am going to take over Tom Brady's record. Watch me do it. Okay, just, what, what are you doing right now? Oh, come on, make me feel a little bit better, right? I mean, you know, hey Trev, you might, but, are you sure you're feeling okay, Trevor? What if I came to you today and I said, you know what, I just want you to know this is my last day in the pulpit because I am going to be the next football star in the NFL. You'd look at me and you'd say, that guy's lost it, right? If he thought his claim was true, he is a lunatic and he's sincerely deluded, okay? He's delusional. You would look at me and you would, if I truly came and said that to you, you would go and you'd, you'd say, what in the world is going on? What's happened? Do we need to get you to a hospital, okay? Next one, he knew his claim was false, right? So this is what's so important, and that's why I said earlier that when Jesus makes these claims, 
that indeed he is God. He is leading himself to death. If you're lying, right? Okay? He's a liar who died as a fool. He's a liar who died as a fool. Think about that for a minute. Jesus continued to say who he was, and he never denied his claims to the point that he died on a cross. You would think that if he was lying, at some point, if he had any semblance of mentality in him, that he would say, you know what, I'm lying. Put under pressure. When we look, and we look at legal obligations, when we look at claims of people, what you do is you put them under pressure. And as you put them under pressure, if their story is true, they will not break. If their story is not, it cracks. And Jesus, not once, said, okay, you got me. And so the ultimate conclusion is this. If his claim was true, the only conclusion we can be led to is it is that he, in fact, is God. He is Lord. That's the lunatic, liar, Lord argument. And one of the things that I think is so important when we look at that, number one in our worship of Jesus, is to realize that we worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Side to that, yes, we have a relational aspect with Jesus. Yes, we can come to him. We can give him our burdens, our thoughts, and our pains. Yes, he is an amazing, forgiving individual, but he is Lord. He should be Lord of our life. But the bottom line in this argument is, with the claims that Jesus made, And in a moment, with the claims that Jesus substantiates, you can only put him in one of three categories. And so the question that I ask you today is simply this. Who is Jesus to you? Is he a lunatic? Is he a liar? Or is he Lord? And so the next thing that I'd like to encourage you in, and what I would ask that you do is take a look at some of these scriptures. Uh, We're going to just go briefly over them. This is not an exhaustive list, okay? This is just a sampling of some of the things that Jesus said and authenticated or did to demonstrate his uniqueness and the fact that he was God in the flesh, okay? What works did Jesus do that substantiated his remarkable claim? Because it is a remarkable one. It is a remarkable claim to stand before people and say, I am God in the flesh. It is a remarkable claim to say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who comes to me will never die. So what did he do to substantiate these things? Not only did he say them, but he backed them up, proving who he was and is. In Matthew 14, through 23, we see Jesus walked on water, okay? How many of you have ever looked at those YouTube things where they like try to have people walk on water or maybe they have like those floating logs and they run out a little bit and they get kind of far and you're like, you know, great job, but then they always, okay? Jesus walked on water. So that's pretty darn unique. Anybody ever walk on water? 
Okay. Okay. It was, it was frozen, right. Somebody said frozen, right. No, okay. Yeah, yeah that's, it is water. That's true. Walked on non-frozen water, right? Okay. Maybe some of you have come close. Maybe you've barefoot skied out there on Lake Panorama. Maybe that's about as close to walking on water as you have. So Jesus walked on water. In Mark 4, 35 through 41, Jesus commands and causes the wind and the sea to obey him. You know, I've often pondered this, okay? Think about this for a minute. Think about some of the storms that we see roll in through the summer and the springs and kind of the fall of Iowa, right? Right? Do you remember a couple of years ago, how many of you were here when the tornado went through? Okay. Well, the derecho, that could be one, or the tornado, right? I don't know about you, but I remember when that went through, all I remember before we kind of went into the bottom part of our house and shut the door, I looked out and, and saw, right, between lightning flashes, fairly large trees, and they were going like this, right? What if I just stood out there and I said, stop, and it did? Think about that. That's what Jesus did. And that's what individuals claimed. This is the other thing. They claimed that, and they said that to their deaths as well. So we continue with this lunatic liar Lord, right? And people said, hey, we saw this. Jesus did this. We were there. And none of them began to say, hey, it was just a conspiracy. It was just a lie to their death. In Luke 9, 10 through 20, we see Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people, okay? We got our community dinner coming up, right? What if we get to our community dinner and we had five loaves and two fish, right? And the next thing you know, we had 5,000 people come. What are we gonna do? Okay, we're making a quick run to the grocery store, aren't we? Jesus multiplies this as only he can do to the point that everybody ate, as we read in the scriptures, but not only did they eat, they were satisfied and there was leftovers. Okay? And that's a whole other sermon for another day, talking about the abundant blessing of Jesus Christ, but a miracle that Jesus does. In John 9, 1 through 7, we see Jesus heal a man born blind. Um, unbelievable. Okay? He was a blind man. And then in John 11, 32 through 45, we see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Knowingly that he was dead. Flatlined, for lack of a better word. Dead, gone. And these are just some of the miracles that Jesus performs, not all. And the whole point that I'm making is this. When you see someone come forward and make the claims that Jesus makes, and when you see someone back up those claims with what has been stated here as well as others, again, this is not an exhaustive list, I encourage you to read these, 
But I also encourage you to search the scriptures of the other miracles that Jesus did. We have to logically begin to say there is something unique about this individual. And as we go back to the lunatic, liar, and Lord, we begin to realize that if Jesus was not God, he either was a liar or a lunatic. But we discover that he's Lord. But here's what's also interesting. We realize that the individuals who knew Jesus said the same thing. How many of you are familiar with Chuck Colson? How many of you recognize how his ministry started? Okay. Okay. Chuck Colson, advisor, Nixon era, gets in trouble. Basically, they are under pressure. What occurs is this. He begins to realize that the most powerful people of that time who had all of the ability could not keep a conspiracy under. Okay? So when they began to get under pressure, when they were pressured by the government, they began to sing like canaries. Okay? What caused him to come to faith in Christ was as he examined the scripture, he realized that these people didn't have any authority. They had nothing to gain. They had no power to lose. They had no position to keep. And they all said the same thing to their deaths. And he said, it has to be true. It has to be true. And so when you have Jesus making the claim and you have others saying the claim to the point that they're willing to go to their deaths because of it, we have to take notice of who Jesus is. And so we've seen that Jesus has had a unique beginning and we've seen that Jesus has an incomparable life. Next week we are going to look at Jesus' death and his resurrection and what that means for us. But this morning what I want to leave you with is simply this. Jesus' unique beginning and his incomparable life all point to the fact that he was fully man and fully God making himself the long-awaited Messiah. All that was stated, as I've said earlier, the whole Bible points to Jesus Christ. All that was stated about the Messiah in the Old Testament, Jesus answers in the New. And the only way that he can answer that wholly and completely in the New is if he is God in the flesh, the long-awaited Messiah. Finally, what does that mean for us? If he's answered it in the Old and he is in the New, what is stated about him and what is to come is true. And therein lies our hope. Therein lies the joy of the resurrection, the blessedness of what we worship, the hope of the life to come. Hence, Jesus can say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. We just thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the unique man that he is, God in the flesh. Father, in that, I pray that that would encourage us and embolden us in our faith to truly realize what we worship. Father, again, I've said before, please don't have this elevate us above others. 
in humility and in grace and in love, may we continue to go out and present the gospel to a lost and hurting world. But Father, may we realize truly the great leader that we have. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the maker of heaven and earth. The claims that he's made are true, and he has substantiated those claims. And Father, we can place and rest our hope and trust and our eternal salvation upon it. With that, Lord, in a moment, we're going to move forward to our time of communion, and I pray that as we do, we would just take a moment to truly recognize the gift that we have, and that in that, we would realize how we've been given that gift through Christ's death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. We ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people say,